Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! Um, It's good to see you all. So we are in the midst of uh, a message series right now on liturgical flow, um, which basically means... Uh, we've looked at how we orient our service and how we do a whole movement on a Sunday morning. And the goal and what we're trying to do is that uh, we don't have to do any one particular thing for it to be church. There's not like a church rule book that says, well, you have to accomplish these things on Sunday morning, otherwise it isn't church. Uh, so what we want to do instead is say, well, if, if there's, we can do anything in this space, then what are the things that we're doing in service that help connect us to Saturday and Friday and Thursday behind us and to our Monday and our Tuesday and our Wednesday ahead of us? How do we create that the the entirety of our lives and our experience and who we are is woven together with the nature of who God is? A lot of times in the way that I've experienced church, um, and it may be something that you've had of church, is that you go through your life at 100 miles an hour and you're moving, and you're working, you're not doing a lot of thinking and reflection, you go to church, and it's kind of like a shelter in the storm, and you just kind of sit and rest, and then you like bear up to like run back out into the world or to life, or to forget altogether whatever you did at church, and just like get on with the rest of life. Our hope in our Sunday morning service is that we're inviting you to bring yourself to this space, your experiences, your emotions, these things that inform who you are, And that we are weaving the nature of God and the nature of community into those experiences. That these aren't two separate realities, or this isn't a shelter reality to escape the other reality, but it's one thing. And that God is present in the midst of it all. And so this morning, what we want to look at is fear. One of our liturgical flow movements is a confession of fear. Um, And that language was was very intentional, and that we wanted to say that we have fear fears that are within us, that are a part of our lives. And usually when I say fears, uh, we can think of like scary movies or like don't go in that room, or when you're a child, like being afraid of the dark, or I don't like spiders. Um, But I'm talking about like the deeper fears, the fear that I'm an imposter. And one day everyone's going to find out who I really am and they're going to walk away from me. The fear of, I don't want to be successful in what I do. I want to be able to operate in my life like just high enough that no one notices me, but I don't want to to really push myself and discover who I am and who I'm supposed to be. We have a deep fear. We can't have a deep fear that our relationships will break and end, and that ultimately the people we love will leave us at some point. Or some of us have a deep fear of intimacy that linked to that same thing. We never want to let anyone too close. We never want to have any relationships where too much of ourselves are laid bare because that could be used as ammunition against us. And what we believe about these fears, the reason why we've woven it into the nature of what we do in church, is that these fears become more powerful not when they're acknowledged, but when they're ignored. These fears grow and become this bigger force in our lives, and we don't stop and say, I have a fear about what this is. We've used the analogy here, but a lot of times our fears in our brain are a lot like a quality control manager with a clipboard. 
and they're just looking out of, our fears are looking out of our own eyes and are like looking at threats. And like, hey, that person you really love, they could leave you. And a lot of times we hear a whisper of that threat or that, that thing that could happen and it freaks us out and so we run from it. And so this quality control manager with the clipboard is chasing us inside of our own head, yelling louder and louder and louder. They could leave you. They could leave you. And when we stop and we turn around and we face this voice within us and say, I know, I know. Then that fear within us goes, okay. And we can move on. That there's other things that we can face and acknowledge. We can see how God is moving and working because we're not spending all of our time running from these fears within us. And so what we want to do this morning, if we talk about fear, some of you can identify. Some of you have said, yes, I have these fears. These are the fears I've linked. But for some of us, that word fear, the concept, isn't helpful. It's not something we can really link to. So this morning, we want to try and, and broaden our understanding of fear to something that might be more helpful. So this morning... We're going to look at fear as loss of control. What does the world look like when things are out of control and we are kind of woken up to this reality that we live in a wild and unruly world that we're not in control of? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at two stories from the Gospel of Matthew. um, And we're going to look at uh, a storm. So that kind of loss of control that is uh, what insurance reps call an act of God. Those things that are, no one could be in control of. No one's the cause of. Um, when you have, when you meet with your doctor and you get a cancer diagnosis, that's not something someone did. It's something that happens to us. When natural disasters strike, when we have these things in our lives where there's no one to blame, they just happen. What do we do with that? And then we're going to look at another story later in the same gospel where Peter denies Jesus three times. What do we do when we're the cause of our loss of control, where we think we understand who we are and how we operate in the world, and then we experience something that wakes us up to, oh no, I'm not always in control of what I do and how I engage in the world. And in fact, some of what is lost in that loss of control is that we knew who we were, that we could anticipate and predict our own actions and behaviors. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you um, to either open it up, pull up the app um, to follow along. And the reason for that isn't just to appear more holy to the people sitting next to you, but if that works, great. Um, (laughs) But I actually, so a lot of those apps, they they can keep notes for you. And I think it can be an incredibly um, beneficial thing to just keep notes on different passages on how it's interacting with you and your world today. So we're going to start looking at Matthew 8. Um, So if you don't have a Bible, no worries, it'll be right here on the screen. Matthew 8, 23 through 26. Then he, speaking of Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves. And it was completely calm. A couple of things to kind of note in this story. One, um, I think the Bible is incredibly funny. And um, if you've ever been on an airplane and you're taking off, have you ever noticed the people pretending like they're sleeping during the takeoff of the plane? 
I think it's one of the funniest things ever. They're just like, Like, you're not sleeping. <laughs> we all know you're not sleeping. The plane's taking off. Just open up your eyes like the rest of us and just watch what's happening around you. And this is the image that I have of Jesus in the boat. <laughs> that if you have a storm where the waves are coming over the edge of the boat, and if you recall that these disciples, these followers of Jesus, had other professions prior to being disciples, and a majority of them were fishermen who have made their living on the water, in this exact sea, fishing, that if a storm is big enough that they think they're going to drown and die, people who have grown up on the water and have made their living on the water, this isn't a little storm. And Jesus sleeping is straight comedy. That's hilarious that Jesus is asleep. A lot of times what happens in our lives and in circumstances is we look around and we find out this is out of control. This circumstance, what's happening, it has exceeded my level of expertise, my level of preparation, who I am and what's going on. This is beyond me. It's out of my control. And it freaks us out to the very core of our being. Everything starts to come into question now. If you've made your identity being good at something, and that thing is taken away, if you say, I am an excellent fisherman, I can navigate this sea and anything the sea throws at me, and then you handle or you encounter a storm that is beyond your abilities, it's not just, oh, I need to go get some more training in the sea. Now it's, who am I? One of the things that I've, I've learned about myself is, um, you know what, we're going to go through one Sunday where we don't <laughs> acknowledge the Enneagram, even though it's a thing that exists. But it has been a helpful tool for me to understand. <laughs> I've already blown it. Um, one of the things about my personality is that it is easier for me to see where other people are coming from. So when people do things I don't understand, it's easier for me to be able to say, oh, I think they were thinking this or this was their intention. I can see things from other people's point of view. And it's something that I really value about myself. It's been incredibly helpful. But the shadow side of that really helpful thing is that, oh, this is something I do well. This is something that's easy for me to see that other people may not see as well. But then when I have to sit down with people and there's a disagreement, either them with me or them and another person, and I bring all of that to the table. Oh, I just think it's a, a misunderstanding. This person, I think they're really coming at it from this perspective, and this person's really coming at it this perspective, and do you see? And they go, no. Or I think you're wrong. That is a storm moment for me. Because what gets called into question is, whoa, I can't succeed at the thing that I think I'm really, really good at then who am I and do I have any value? Are you familiar with these moments? Where the thing you think you're the best at, that thing fails and gives way. It makes you feel like, well, what's the point? I can't do anything. And I think those moments are really instructive to us that we start becoming aware of the narrative we're living under and the narrative we're living in is that this is where I'm strong, this is where I'm best, and this is where I'm in control. 
This is the zone. These are the conversations. These are the opportunities I have where I am most in control. This is my thrive zone. This is my wheelhouse. This is what I was made for. And when you fail there, what's left? It exposes that we're ultimately not in control. And what, was, what becomes interesting in that is it exposes that we thought that we could be. We thought that we were in control. Another story that helps illustrate this later in Matthew is Matthew 26. This is uh, Peter and his denial of Jesus. It starts here when they're having, this is at the Last Supper. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Jesus goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested, and Peter starts following this arrest and this trial at a distance. In Matthew 26, 69, it says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This story, uh, this narrative is very much fitting in with the nature of who Peter is. Peter is quick to kind of lead with his beliefs and his heart. And he's always, people never ask, like, I wonder what Peter's thinking. Uh, Because he was always saying it. And when Jesus says, look, this thing and what you think is going down with me as your leader, as your Messiah, it's going to fall apart in this way that I will be arrested and crucified. I'm not going to lead you to some military battle and victory where we become the champions. And Peter's like, oh, oh, I get it. Some other people here, looking at you, Judas, are totally going to deny you. We can see it coming. (laughs) But you're not talking about me, obviously. And Jesus is like, no, like specifically you. (laughs) And I love what Peter says. He's not like, no way, I'll never do that. What does he say? I will die first. I will die first. And then what's really interesting in this story is the first two people that say, hey, weren't you a follower of Jesus? Are both servant girls both times which within that system in society, within a patriarchal system, if you have a female servant in the hierarchical totem pole, it's the person with some of the least power in the room. And that Peter still makes a point to deny the person that he didn't even have to acknowledge their, uh, what they noticed. He could have let it go. 
And in fact, the other indictment that's in there is if you look at the story of Jesus, Jesus is constantly looking to the marginalized and to the oppressed and validating them and acknowledging them. And the people that Peter twice throws entirely under the bus through a lie to self-preserve is the marginalized and the oppressed, the people with the least amount of social power and equity in the room. Have you ever been in an experience like this? Where like, you're like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into this room. I'm going to go ask for a raise. I'm going to tell my boss what I think. I'm going I'm to go into this relationship. I'm going to sit down with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a loved one. Or I'm going to go tell my dad finally what I think or my mom. And then you walk out of the meeting and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> what happened? I was like so ready. I was so prepared to go in there and say and do and act in this way. And it immediately fell apart. It didn't even take like a long period of time to fall apart. It immediately fell apart. That kind of deep sense of loss and failure, I think, hits at some of our greatest fears. That again, we're not in control. We're not in control. Human beings, and uh, they would say that part of how humanity has been able to organize and do the things that we have done as a species is due to the ability to tell stories and the ability to gather around narratives. So one of the things that's really interesting about that is because if you think individuals can go out and hunt and gather, you can go provide for yourselves, you can provide for a couple of people. But to gather together whole nations, you need narratives to drive that kind, that large um, an organization, right? You, you can't just say like, hey, let's go start a country. You need to have a driving narrative about who we are as a country and a people. And this is what we're doing. We are people of narrative. And what becomes really interesting is, is some of us say, I don't think so. I don't really have like a guiding narrative in my life. Wait until someone crosses your unknown narrative. So I'll give you an example. If you're like, no, I mean, I don't care. It can, can kind of be whatever it wants. And then this bill passes. Or then this legislature drops down. Or then some politician that represents your district comes out and makes an official statement on this. And you're like, what? No way. We can't do that. Why not? Because you had a narrative about who you are and what you are a part of. And this bill, this legislation was in direct violation of this thing that you didn't even know was operating and informing your life. Most of us have created narratives around ourselves like hermit crabs take on shells. They become our protection. They become our identity. They become who we are, and they provide us safety in a world that is ultimately wild and unruly. And what becomes most difficult and painful is when we realize that it is just an illusion and it's not true. The story that I told about these are the situations, these kinds of conversations where I can help people understand where this other person's coming from, and then we got a group hug at the end, that's my favorite. 
uh, that I can operate that type of thing, when that falls apart, it violates my core narrative that we're all one people. And if we just sit down, if we just talk it through, if we just understand each other well enough, then we will be okay and live in harmony. When that breaks, that violates the core narrative of my life. And it makes everything feel like it's out of control. Now, those moments when the disciples are on the boat, when Peter denies Jesus, one way of looking at it is that these moments are the aberration. That these moments have exposed a flaw in the system. But if we can correct enough of these flaws, then we'll be okay. That the truth is that we are in control. and We just have a couple of moments of, of getting out of control, but then we can get in control again, right? Like a novice skier. You just snowplow for a little bit, and you'll be okay, right? You'll get back into the flow of it. I actually think these moments are exposing the deeper truth, that we're not in control, that we live in a world that is beyond our control. And what can become so beautiful is when we rest in that and we accept that. Think about it this way. I think part of the reason that Peter goes outside the city and weeps so bitterly isn't because he denied Jesus in and of itself as a fact, but because it violated who he thought he was. The narrative he was telling himself about who he was, the expectations on how he would perform, those shattered, and that is the bitter weeping. What if Peter instead had said, I hope I would never deny you. I really don't ever want to deny you. I can't even imagine a scenario where I would deny you, but whew, I might. I could. It's possible that this thing I believe really, truly at the core of my belief might not always be true. What if when the disciples got in the boat, they said, I don't think we're going to encounter anything we can't conquer and overcome, but maybe we will. We don't know. There's this interesting passage in James where uh, James is talking about our belief about how the world works. And it says that some of us say, well, I'm going to go in a year. I'm going to go into this town. I'm going to do business, make money. And it's going to be great. And James is brutal when he's like, who are you? You're going to go here in a year? You're a mist. What are you talking about your plans and what you're going to do? And then what he doesn't say is, and don't make plans, because that's a fool's errand. He says, no, you understand you continue making your plans, but you couch it under the understanding that ultimately God is operating in a world and sees things beyond what I can see. I hope I can go do that one day, but it's ultimately outside my control. When we face the fear that we're not in control, it doesn't change the outcomes. You will still get, at some point in your life, someone close to you will get a cancer diagnosis. We're not in control of that. And surrendering our expectations that we're in control doesn't make that easier or more pleasant. But it takes away the thing that we go and weep bitterly about, which is that we're not ultimately not in control. Now we can grieve the pain of the person that gets the cancer diagnosis and not our expectations as to how the world is supposed to work. Are you with me? 
The reason why God is inviting us to face our fears and surrender this idea that we're in control isn't so that everything's easier, but it's so that we can actually mourn the right things. It's so that we can be present to the life that we have and deeply mourn the right things. There's this great quote by C.S. Lewis that I love, and it comes from The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis here is ultimately talking about our desires and what we want in the world, but I think this metaphor works perfectly for control and fear. That a lot of times we want to open up the hose and a pile of dirt and we want to create our own little seas. We want to make mud pies in our world, not because that's the world that actually exists, because it's the world we feel most comfortable in. If I created it, if I made the mud pies, I'm ultimately in control. And I think what God is inviting us to is you can do that, but one, it's not true. You're not in control. Peter was creating mud pies in the world that he had created where he would never reject Jesus. He would die first. And what Jesus is saying, and yeah, you're going to deny me, is you want to come with me to the ocean? Instead of hiding and being so gripped by fear to try and create an illusion of a world that you're in control in, how about you show up to the wild and unruly world that exists? And you walk in saying, I'm not in control. I'm not in control. And I want to be present to the God who is in the midst of this whole thing. And I want to be hearing the voice of God. Where are you calling me to engage here? Most of us have nothing to do with God because we're too enamored with our own illusion of control. God is inviting out of us, out of that, and into the world to show up to ourselves, to show up to our reality. And so what I want to kind of close with here is for us to be able to sit and to think and say, what is this illusion of control? What is my narrative of control? What do I believe is operating in the world? Is the narrative of control that you're in control? And I talked about it this week. Um, you guys are pretty good about not elbowing your neighbors, um, but sometimes people do that a lot in church. When you talk about like, oh, that narrative that you're in control, and like, control freak over here. What I think is more helpful is to actually not say who's the controlling person in the room, but to instead look at how are you trying to control the world around you. I am a pretty laid back guy. But I am incredibly controlling. I control through avoidance. I control through withdrawal. I'm not the person that's running in to take charge. It's when other people are running in to take charge, I'm like, deuces, I am out of here. <laughs> Have fun. That's not being someone who's not trying to be in control. That's my type of control. 
If I withdraw myself from it, that's how I can be in control. So to be able to sit with, what is your narrative of control? How do you try and gain control of the world? And by the way, that's not a bad thing. It's also a part of your gift and and who God created you to be, that you bring that into the world to bring about this kingdom of God, this peaceful thriving of all people. God wants to positively impact all the people around you and bring deep blessing to you through that thing but only if you can celebrate it and demonstrate it, not as an attempt at control, but through the recognition that you're not in control. This is the thing that I have to offer. For me, that wouldn't be like avoiding and just deucing out. It would actually be showing up and being in a place of peace, inviting peace into that situation, which is possible when we surrender the control. So what is it for you? I want to give you some time to sit, to think, to reflect, to write down, to pray if you need, but we're going to have a couple of minutes of silence because there's not going to be anyone up here talking and leading that. To be able to reflect on that and to think of what that is. And this is something that we've done a couple of times here and I still find helpful, that when you locate the way that you try and control the world, if you could physically kind of clench your fist as a demonstration of how you try and control And then as you sit with it and you think of what would it look like to surrender this, to open up the hand, to let loose the thing that we hold tight. It's actually within our liturgical flow. It's the piece of art that Scott Erickson made uh, for the the confession of fear is a closed fist to an open hand. How do we let go of that control? And after a couple of minutes, Harriet's going to come up and she's going to lead us further in this conversation and into communion. Would you take some time now to see where are you trying to control and how can you surrender that?
if our control narratives kind of creates this pathway to fear, what do we replace it with? What's the narrative we can replace it with? And I'd like to suggest 1 John 4.18. Perfect love casts out fear. So I want to um, share some thoughts. Um, three snapshots of someone in the Bible that I admire and I believe illustrates how love shows up in the middle of fear. And it's Mary of Bethany. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. The first snapshot comes from Luke 10. And there is this story that this interaction between Mary, Martha, and Jesus. Mainly Martha and Jesus. But in this story, um, Martha's complaining pretty loudly that Mary's not helping her in the kitchen. Now for Mary... She has, has, she has no control over the fact that she's been born into the world as a woman, born into a patriarchal society. She has no control over the fact that she has no husband. And we're not ever told in Scripture why she's single as well, along with her, her sister and Martha. But she chooses to push past the fear of judgment, of, um, of staying in the sidelines. And she chooses to go with her desires. And in that sense, she chooses to love herself and to lean into what she wants. And what she wants to do is sit at the feet of Jesus in the living room and not help in the kitchen. In the second snapshot, it comes from um, John 11, and this is a really um, tragic story of Mary and Martha losing their brother Lazarus. And she has had no control over the illness that Lazarus had to the point that he dies. She has no control over Jesus' itinerary, despite the fact that both she and Martha pleads with Jesus to come. They know that Jesus can heal Lazarus, but he doesn't come. And so Lazarus dies, and she's left grieving and weeping. And then Jesus comes. And he comes, and he stands with her, and he weeps too. And then he restores Lazarus to life, restores him to Mary and Martha. And this was a really... Not just uh, an amazing miracle, but Mary and Martha faced some fears as they were losing more than ice. And in that moment, I, can, I see Mary realizing, really realizing that God's love for her is personal as Jesus restores Lazarus to her. So love for herself and then God's love for her. And then the third story is the one from Matthew 26, the chapter that we were in about Peter's denial. Um, the chapter actually, at, that happens at the end of the cha um, chapter 26. But at the beginning, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to uh, be crucified in just a couple days from then. 
and it's really, uh, as I have read that passage over and over again, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, I realized there's like absolutely no response from anyone. Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die. He's going to be crucified, in fact. And um, there's no response that Matthew records at all. It's like complete silence. And then Matthew tells us the progression of events that is going to lead to his death. First, the chief priests conspire. They're going to plot his death. They finally decided they're going to try and trap him, arrest him, and then kill him. And then later, Judas goes to the priests, and he participates in that plot. And between these two stories of betrayal and plotting is the story of loyal love, of devotion, of Mary, of Bethany. And in the story, um, she decides, and she never says a word through this whole thing, she decides to walk in to this room, the disciples. It's not the Last Supper. This is the, a couple days prior to this final supper. Um, the disciples are in this room with Jesus, and they're sharing a meal. And Mary walks in silently, speak, and full of testosterone <laughs> as they're hyped up this week. And uh, she takes her very valuable, expensive jar of perfume, breaks it, and pours it over Jesus' head. And instead of the disciples grappling with the fact that they're about to lose their rabbi, their leader, their Messiah, they start to complain about this little jar of oil that's so expensive. And they start complaining and rebuking her. And Jesus comes to her defense and says this. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for her, my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He totally reframes what her act that she offers. So this is her expression in the midst of fears and uncertainty of this terrible news that he's about to die. She chooses to love him and pour this perfume on him. And he reframes it as an act of preparing his body for burial. A beautiful act, he calls it. So as we come to the communion table, that's every time the gospel is preached, is this act of Mary, something that's supposed to be told every time the gospel is preached, is this story, which I don't think we do very well. <laughs> but uh, as you come to the table, I, encourage, I would invite you to come with all the fears that you hold, with all the areas that you realize that you don't have control over, and come and ask the question, where can love show up? Where is love in this? And remember that God's love for you is totally complete and unconditional, and he takes everything that you are and uh, what you carry, and he loves you. Perfect love casts out fear. <laughs>